there are no spectators to the Word of God. Any part of the Word of God, you and I are called to be more than those who simply observe what we find on the printed page. There's a simple reason for that. All of the Word of God, especially in some sense the Gospels, certainly our text, all of those have a very real and a present relevance. Friend, I'd submit to you that this text that we take up this morning is, is more relevant than we could imagine. It has more to say to us in the 21st century than often I think we realize. This is a text for you and for me. A text that's to instruct us as well as to challenge us. A text that holds forth present warnings, even as it also does present graces. And it should be our prayer that the Lord would cause us to hear those, all of them, this morning. You'll remember that in our text, up to this point, we find Christ in the synagogue. And everything that we found here is quite customary. Christ has returned to his hometown after his earlier preaching circuit through Samaria and into Galilee. And now, <coughs> excuse me, he, he goes from the, from the Galilean regions around Cana back to his hometown. And while he's in the synagogue in Nazareth, he, he takes up the word of God and he takes up that chapter in Isaiah, chapter 61, and he reads. He reads a text that in many ways we could say is a compendium, something of a digest of all that the Messiah was supposed to accomplish for his people as he was prophet, priest, and king. And then as we read Christ hands the text back to the minister, to the servant of the synagogue, and he sits down. And we're told immediately, after reading the text, he simply says, This day, the scripture is fulfilled in your ears. In your hearing, these words are realized. Now, everything that we've encountered thus far is quite typical. Everything that Christ does, we would expect, even in taking up the book and handing it back to the servant of the synagogue and in sitting down, all of that, as we said last week, was simply standard procedure for somebody who is to expound the word of God. And so what you and I need to recognize this morning is, is that truly the text in front of us is really the first chronologically recorded sermon of Christ. That is the first sermon that Christ really gives to us in this early stage of his ministry as an exposition of a text of, of Scripture. Here Christ is doing the work of a preacher, expounding the text. And so in verses 21 to 27, you and I are to recognize that this is Christ's sermon on Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And then, friend, what you'll notice, as you look at the sermon... It's so very important to make the distinction between a lecture and a sermon, especially in a text like this. A lecture, you, you imagine, is something that is really going to give to you what is in the text itself. It's going to focus primarily on, on, on the words or the historical context of a portion of Scripture. And then, very lightly, will it emphasize points of application. That's a lecture. A sermon is entirely different. While it certainly intends to lead the true meaning of the text out in front of the congregation, 
A sermon is principally a work of application where that text and the truths of it are applied primarily to the consciences of its hearers. And I want you to know, friend, in our text, Christ is preaching a sermon, not giving a lecture. What you have in this text is Christ lifting this text, Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2, and particularly applying it to Nazareth. This is a work of application. And what he says, friend, from that text of Scripture is that the benefits therein described may very well pass over members of the visible church and go to others. In fact, he uses two Old Testament illustrations to make that point. Nazareth should not presume that just because he is a gracious prophet, priest, and king, that because of their familiarity with him, they will receive his benefits. That's the sermon. And then in verses 28 to the end, you find the proof, the evidence that the application that Christ made to Nazareth was well-founded. That Nazareth indeed had no welcome for their Savior. What you see in this text then is both sermon and response. And as we look at this text, friend, there's a basic theme that comes to us. It's that Christ's benefits pass over formal believers to humble sinners. This is, in many ways, friend, a very concise way of, of leading out the basic meaning of Christ's preaching. Christ's benefits pass over formal believers to humble sinners. I said to you at the beginning that there is a lot in this text that speaks to us in the 21st century. And friend, I'd submit to you that this basic theme certainly is part of that point of application. We need to hear this as well. It's difficult, this particular theme. But it's so, so very relevant. I want us to look at how the Lord leads us through these thoughts by first of all taking up a description of what familiarity the formal believer seems to have with Christ. In what way can the hypocrite, that is somebody who is a member of the visible church but who does not really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, does not close with him savingly, to what degree can can that one say they, they are familiar with the Lord Jesus? The text actually gives us some description. When Christ says that no prophet is accepted in his own country, you recognize that he's actually replying to to statements of familiarity with him that were in the verses preceding, verses 22 and 23. The Nazarenes in those two verses are saying very pointedly that that they have some acquaintance with, with his preaching so as to appreciate it, and they also know something of his person. They have some familiarity with Christ. And yet, friend, when Christ turns around and he begins and says, no prophet is except in his own country, he's saying the, the kind of familiarity that they have with him is not saving. It falls short of a saving acceptance of his person, of his benefits. And so, friend, we find in this text if you like, three ways in which one can claim familiarity with Christ and yet not truly accept him. 
The first way is that of appreciation, and you find that in verse 22, where we're told expressly that the Nazarenes, they wondered at his gracious words. They looked at his discourse as he, as he preached from Isaiah 61, and they recognized something of elegance, something of grace in the text and in, in its exposition. They marveled. And friend, they were just like those who sat under the ministry of John the Baptist. Christ describes that congregation as those who were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. They were like those who we read in Ezekiel 33. The prophet was unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. These Nazarenes were like those who are described by Christ later on who hear the word and anon with joy receive it. They could appreciate the sound of Christ's voice and yet reject him. They had some familiarity, some appreciation of the words which he spoke, but still reject him. That's the first degree of of familiarity one may have. They can appreciate the word and the truth of Christ. The second element is that of knowledge. In verse 22, we're told that they turn to each other and they say, is not this Joseph's son? And, And friend, I don't believe you and I are supposed to look at this as something of a term of derision. Uh, They're not pouring contempt necessarily upon Christ. They're really remarking a simple truth. Jesus was the adopted son of Joseph. And in the sense that they mean it, I believe, in this text, they're simply saying, we know him. He was reared among us. This is his hometown. And they marvel and they know something, friend, about him. But I want you to notice, friend, that this knowledge that they have of his person, this degree of familiarity that that I think in many ways they're boasting in in this moment, is still not a saving knowledge. These ones can be described as Peter does, as those who perhaps have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but are again entangled therein and overcome. His latter end is worse with them than the beginning. You see what Peter is saying. He's saying not only in the first century, not only in Nazareth, but there are those who can have some kind of knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. As it were, to pull them out of the corruptions of their generation. To to pull them away from, from worldliness, overt worldliness. And yet that knowledge that they have They hold it in such a way that they are barren and unfruitful and whose end, as Peter says, is worse than their beginning. They can have some knowledge of the person and work of Christ and yet, friend, that knowledge not saving. But the third way we find familiarity with Christ in this text is actually from the words of Christ. He says to them one day, they will say, Physician, heal thyself. Friend, this is not, I believe, at all supposed to be taken as a reference to what is spoken to Christ in contempt at the cross. What he's referring to is actually explained for us in the text. When when he says, physician, heal thyself, 
He's saying that they will say, certainly we have heard what was done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And friend, it's important for us to recognize what he's saying. He's saying that they will see him as their own. Allow me to illustrate further what I mean. What Christ is saying here is that they will take such ownership in Christ that they will say it's of necessity that he heals his own hometown. That it's of necessity that his benefits come to his own. If he's a physician, why would he not heal himself? That is his people. Nazareth. A friend, what you recognize here is that they take the Lord of glory and they treat him as their own homegrown boy. And obviously in this they were quite wrong. But you see what Christ is saying. Their claims to him are of pure presumption. They think because they have some external connection with Christ, that therefore he is obliged to them, despite their lack of faith, notwithstanding their malice toward holiness and love of iniquity, that nevertheless they must have his benefits. Physician, heal thyself. Christ says pointedly, this is not an acceptance of his person. It's no different than that generation that said, we be of Abraham's seed and we're never in bondage to any man. (coughs) You recognize in John 8, where where, where that is spoken to Christ, they're speaking of the spiritual benefits of being the ethnic descendants of Abraham. They're saying that because of our external connection to Abraham, we never were nor could be in spiritual bondage. Notwithstanding their formality. Notwithstanding their unbelief. They would presume upon grace. They boasted in their external privileges. And so, friend, you have here in these two verses a very, a very detailed description A familiarity with Christ that is not saving. A familiarity that consists in some kind of appreciation of the proclamation of his word. A familiarity that has some knowledge of Christ with it. A familiarity that boasts in its external connections to the Lord Jesus. And of course, the question of examination for you and for me this morning is, of course, friend, do we see ourselves here? Must Christ, friend, communicate his blessings to you this morning simply because you like the sound of the preached word? Because you delight in some knowledge of him? Because of your connection to the church, attendance on the means of grace, and so on? Friend, all of those questions are very deeply relevant. But what we find is as Christ leaves this, really, this picture of familiarity with himself that is not saving, he in the sermon, verses 25 to 27, take the text that he has just read and he applies it to these ones. And you notice what he says. He says, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elias. And then he goes on to say there were many lepers in the time of Eliseus. Obviously, of course, he's referring to the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. 
Now, he takes these examples of the widow of Zarephath and of Naaman, the Syrian. And I want you to notice that there are really two points that you and I are to draw from that. In context, you recognize he does so because he's showing the fewness of those who actually received the benefits of their ministry. There were many in Israel who stood in need. And yet only the widow of Zarephath and only Naaman the Syrian receive these particular mercies. There are few that really get good of God under the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. That's the first point, the fewness of those who receive the benefit. But the second point that you have to see, and friend, this is far more central to the text, who are the ones who receive the benefits of these two prophets? Who are those who really profit under their ministries? The widow of Zarephath, a Sidonian, and Naaman, a Syrian. These are Gentiles who were well without the visible church at the time. And friend, that really is the central point to Christ's preaching. And as we'll see, that really is the central point that provokes the malice of the Nazarenes. What Christ is teaching us here is that there are great sinners who receive Christ's benefits, while formal professors in the church do not. There are great sinners who receive Christ's benefits, while formal professors in the church do not. And the the sobering thing about Christ's preaching here, the sobering thing is that he's emphasizing that what will befall Nazareth is not unique. It's not uncommon. In fact, by lifting the examples of Elijah and Elisha as he does from the pages of Scripture, he's saying that actually this is a practice that's well established in the history of the church. And friend, that's, that's the sobering element of this text that we shouldn't miss this morning. That's the element of the text that ought to warn us. He's not simply saying that this will happen to Nazareth, but that there is, there is established precedent even for this to occur. Of course, the prophets are filled with this. God says through his prophet Isaiah, I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. Christ will say of his own generation in another text, many shall come from the east and west, shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the the children of the kingdom, that is those who are members of the visible church, they shall be cast out into utter darkness. Friend, Christ could not be clearer. The experience of the Israelites under the ministries of Elijah and Elisha when when only these few Gentiles received good from their ministry. Christ says will be in fact reenacted in his day and as we read through the epistles, friend, we find it even afterward as well. This is that part of the text that is to warn us. If I can be just autobiographical for a moment, friend, I've seen, I've seen this happen. I know of people in the visible church 
who have gotten less of Christ than those who had lived lives long outside of the sound of God's word, well without the doors of the church building. I know of many who have gotten more of Christ who lived those kinds of lives, who were for so long without God in the world. And covenant children, friend who lead lives today, who are just pictures of deadness, coldness, barrenness. I want you to know, friend, that what Nazareth is to experience here is still experienced today. And friend, especially for those who are raised in the church, this is a text that is really for your warning. Friend, just because you are connected to the church, and and however so close away you may be, friend, you need to remember, you need to remember that the only way to get good from Christ's ministry is by a personal and a vital faith in Him. And you need to know, friend, that there are, there are some out in the world today, outside of the visible church, who may get more of Christ than you do, if you do not. And so the foreigner, we're told, will receive the mercy of God before the formal professor. But thirdly and finally, as we close this text, we find the futility of opposition to Christ. Obviously, that comes to us in the miracle that's worked. The Nazarenes hearing that Christ intends, in fact, to go and to call those even outside of the visible church and intends to do them good, even while Nazareth, because of her unbelief, is passed over. This provokes them to fury. They come to that point where they're going to throw him from the brow of the hill, and the text simply says, and then he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Now there's a number of remarkable things about this part of the text. First of all, I suppose it's remarkable, isn't it, that Christ allows them to take him so far. I'm not sure what to make of that, but, but obviously Christ could have turned around at any point, but he doesn't. He allows them to take them thus far. Friend, one wonders certainly if, if we should see there the Lord's forbearance, his patience, waiting for them to turn, even to the point before they take him to the hill's brow. And then the second thing, of course, is the way in which the miracle is described. Uh, the idea is not that, that he dematerializes before them. He simply walks through their midst. They were intent on casting this man headlong. And yet, without any opposition, he is able but to turn and to walk through them. What you and I are supposed to see in this text, friend, I believe, is that formality and contempt against Christ cannot prevent him. It's a wonderful display of Christ, but... I want you to notice that there are three ways you can look at this. First of all, you, can't, you can see this, that, that these formal professors and their hatred for him can do nothing against his person. Now, in order for us to see this, I'd encourage you to look back to verse 9 of, of Luke 4. 
I know we didn't read it, but, but you remember the context. The context is Christ's temptation in the wilderness. And, and it is quite striking that, that Luke passes by many of the events, in fact, all of the events that we've looked at thus far in the book of John, to link together the temptation in the wilderness and this Christ's ministry in Nazareth. And what's even perhaps more striking is that you remember that the order of the temptations in Matthew and Luke are different. And I said to you back when we were looking at the temptations that there was a reason for that. Well, friend, I want you to notice that in verse 9, I think we have an answer for that different order. Note in the ninth verse that Satan goes to Christ and urges him to cast himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. It's striking. In the original, the words are very similar to what you find in verses 27 and following. But what do we see? Friend, in verse 9 and in verse 30, in very similar circumstances, we see Christ overcoming Satan's subtlety on the one hand and his enemy's malice on the other. I don't know if that thrills your soul, but it should. Friend, he overcomes in a very, even a very similar way the temptations of Satan and the hatred of the Nazarenes. Ours, friend, is a strong, a victorious Savior. And he cannot be overcome by either hatred or temptation. It cannot prevail against himself. But secondly, I want you to notice as well that you see here that neither can their contempt overcome his judgment. This is perhaps a bit more subtle, but I want you to notice how the text gives to us Christ's response. He says he just passes through the midst of them. Certainly, it's a picture of divine omnipotence. But there's something else there that's something else there that's quite quite staggering. He simply leaves them at the brow of the hill. He leaves them as they were. He takes himself and his benefits with him. And he leaves them in thrall to sin and under the curse of the law. I don't know if that picture, I don't know if that strikes you, but friend, I think it should. He leaves them, he leaves their house desolate. It reminds me certainly of what you have in Romans 1 where the judgment of God is simply described as God giving them up to their own vile affections. Simply leaves them as they are. In many ways, friend, you should recognize that as Christ simply walks through the crowd and goes on his way, that was Christ leaving them in their sin. They would get no good from him. But thirdly, neither friend could their contempt prevent his work. And this is an encouraging note because we're told in the text he went his way. That is the way that was particularly his. Now I suppose you could interpret the works of the Nazarenes up to this point that if if Christ will not benefit us, then, then he'll benefit none at all. And so they intend to throw him headlong from the hill. And yet Christ goes on his way. Their rejection of Christ will not hinder him 
tendering his benefits to others. Here you have Christ having other sheep, not of this fold that he must go and bring, who will hear his voice, who will take him as shepherd. He goes on his way to get them. He goes into the mountains to seek them that have gone astray, even leaving the 99 to themselves. And friend, that means then that the malice and the rejection of the world cannot prevent our faithful shepherd from seeking his own. If Christ is not well entertained in one part, you should expect that he'll pass through them, leaving them where they are, and go to another. And so as we leave this text this morning, I want us to apply it in a few ways. I want us to see, first of all, how this text does speak consolation for us. I want you to notice, friend, that in this text, by just drawing out those examples of of the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian, that Christ is actually also saying something about the vessels of grace. While he is saying something certainly about Nazareth and about Nazareth being passed over, he's also saying that he himself is pleased to show mercy to great sinners. Those who were once aliens and strangers to the commonwealth of Israel without God in the world. Those Christ is pleased to save. And not just those who are well polished. Not those who are proper and primmed after rearing in the church, but without faith. No friend, those ones are passed over and God will manifest his grace to others who will close with his offer by a sincere faith. Friend, that should be an encouragement for us. It should be an encouragement for us because we see here, we see here powerfully the greatness of the mercy that is in Christ. The the pleasure that God has in bringing to himself those who are most unworthy, vile even in the eyes of the world and others. But friend, for our examination, there are two points, and I do want us to close with this. I began by saying something of the relevance of this text. And friend, the relevance of this text, that which prevents us from being able to be bystanders, to be simply spectators, is the fact that the Christ who is presented to us in this passage is an imminent Christ. A Christ who is near. Friend, I don't think we appreciate this as we ought to. There are those, friend, on the last day, Christ tells us, who will say, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee. The unbeliever forgets that Christ is imminent and in his people. But friend, you also have to remember with that that there are those Oh, on the last day, Christ will turn to them and he said, You have rejected my preaching just as Nazareth, just as Capernaum. And they will turn perhaps and say, Lord, when did we reject thee? When did we ever cast aside thy word? When did we ever hear thee? He that heareth you, heareth me, Christ says to his ministers, and he that despiseth you, despiseth me.
Friend, there are men and women who reject the preaching of Christ today in the 21st century, just like Nazareth did in the first. And they do so by rejecting the faithful proclamation of his word. And Christ says, not me, Christ says that is received by him as a personal rejection. He sees it as though he personally, standing behind the pulpit, was despised, rejected. Friend, if that's the case, then you and I have to ask a question. How was Christ entertained in Lockbrickland today? If the word has been faithfully preached, then it's his word. Preaching is his ordinance, his voice. And so, friend, how was he received in Lockbrickland this morning? For the unbeliever, friend, I want you to notice that Christ is quite, quite concerned about that question. You remember whenever Christ goes to the church of Laodicea, he, he calls them, he says, First of all, buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with thyself that thou mayest see. There's the gospel offer. But then, friend, even though he, that is, as he is in the flesh, is not there ministering to them, but ministering to them by the ordinances of the gospel. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Oh, friend, that's a very graphic image. Christ says he sees himself in Laodicea, outside and knocking. Under the preaching of his word, he gets no entertainment in that church. He sees himself shut out as his word is rejected and his faithful proclamation. Do you want to know, friend, how Christ sees himself today? Revelation 3 gives us a wonderful picture. When visible churches have no time, like Nazareth, to receive the word of Christ aright, he sees himself as shut out of doors and knocking, but gaining no entrance. Those are not my words, friend. That is the word of the living Christ today. Now, friend, that's for the unbeliever, for those who have not closed with Christ. But but for the believer, there's something here too. Do you remember that part of the Song of Solomon where Christ goes to the church and he goes knocking He knocks as well. She is his bride, but she shut the door. And Christ calls to her, and he says, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. You see what Christ is saying? He, He, of course, already has her as his own. We're not talking about an unbeliever there. But in some sense, friend, the church has shut Christ out. And Christ describes himself as being shut out of the night. The church, the believer for a time, too slothful, too contented in itself and its own strength. The believer, perhaps, distracted and dazzled by the things of the world. 
would rather have Christ for a time out of doors. And how does Christ describe himself in that way? Friend, he says that he is one, his head filled with dew and locks with the drops of the night. That should break your heart and mind, friend, because you and I recognize we do that day and daily. Christ comes to us and says, I am sufficient and gracious prophet to instruct you. Priest to conduct you to God. King to rule over you and for you. And yet we labor for that which satisfieth not. When we sit under the preaching of his word, as he continues to make offers to you from himself in that word, how often do we meet those offers with coldness? And the way that Christ, and friend, in Song of Solomon 5, you need to see that text as referring precisely to that experience, where Christ is offering more and more of himself to the church, and the church for a time in sluggishness refuses. In that refusal, Christ says he is as one shut out in the night, his head filled with dew, and his locks with the drops of the night. The exhortation from this text, friend, is then to close with Christ. Unlike the Nazarenes, friend, the text urges us to make sure that we are those who have a genuine and a saving acceptance of Christ, even now. But the second point of exhortation, friend, is perhaps not in the text itself, but certainly is is there by extension. Nazareth rejected a Christ who just said that he was a gracious Messiah. A Christ who, who described from the word of God all of the benefits that a poor, lost, and undone sinner could crave. He tendered to them that very offer. And yet they took him to the brow of the hill to throw him down. Christ goes to the church of Laodicea. And he knocks but cannot gain entry. He goes to the church in Song of Solomon 5, even to believers. And often finds himself out of doors there as well. Friend, does that break your heart? Does it break your heart that Christ gets so little entertainment in Northern Ireland? Though for centuries he has been knocking. Friend, does it, does it bring tears to your eyes that our gracious Christ, for centuries in the Western Hemisphere, has offered again and again his benefits to needy sinners? and yet knocks outside the door. Does it break your heart, friend, that if the incarnate Christ stood in our midst today, there would even be professing Christians who would do as Nazareth did, may it be, friend, that in Lock Brickland we we would be those who have a true and saving familiarity with Christ. May it be that it grieves our heart when he receives so little entertainment elsewhere. 
Father, but may it be that the Lord, the Father of lights, grants grace that we may be those who know his dwelling among us and in us, and not knocking out the door. Amen.